You're listening to a North Valley Community Church podcast. For more information and resources, visit us online at northvalleychurch.org. All right, well, good morning. Good to be with you guys. We're jumping into a new message series called The Moral of the Story. Uh, so we're going to have a lot of fun looking at the life of uh, Jesus and as how, as how he told stories. I love telling stories myself. I come from a long family of stories. Every time I go back for the holidays, my, my family always says, hey, Ryan, hey, Ryan, tell that story when, and then we jump off and they try to laugh, and usually they're laughing at me, not with me. So uh, one day, uh, I heard a funny story the other day. One day I heard about this young girl who asked her mother, mom, why do you have so much gray hair? And her mother looked at her daughter very sternly said to her, listen, every gray hair that I have is representative of a time that you were disobedient to me. I have gray, and then, uh, and then she goes on to say, um, I have gray hairs because of your rebellion, young lady. The little girl looked genuinely puzzled at her mother and said, ah, mom, now I know the reason why grandma has so much gray hair too. <laughs> Today we're going to be talking about uh, parables. I'm going to teach you what the Bible has to say about parables. Um, if you've got a Bible, go ahead and open it up. Luke chapter 6, verses 39 through 42 is where we're going to be. Um, the parables are short stories uh, that help illustrate a main truth. I'm going to talk to you about three things you need to know. Number one, they include a moral to the story, and they usually illustrate a central truth. So there's not lots of truths when you hear a parable. Uh, parables are very popular. Um, in the Bible, there's 30 to 70, however you kind of uh, measure that. Uh, if you include all the pithy sayings that Jesus said, it could be upwards to 70. Uh, many people that are not from church understand or have heard of parables because they worked their way in through literature uh, in, in schools, universities around the world. Um, but they usually include a moral to the story. They illustrate a central truth. Number two, they aren't allegories. Allegories usually have some kind of secret hidden meaning. Um, Jesus didn't intend when he was telling these parables, these stories, that they all have all these magical secret meanings behind them. Um, what I mean by that is just take, for example, for those of you that know your Bibles pretty well, in the Gospel of Mark and in some other Gospels, there's a parable about four soils. And if you recall, in the parable of the four soils, it's all about Jesus is telling a story about this guy who's coming out and planting seeds. And he's really trying to illustrate how when the word of God is taught or preached, it's like sowing seed and different people will have different responses. And in that parable, there's one response where the, the sower goes out to sow the seed and the ground is really hard and it doesn't yield any, any vegetation, any fruit. The seed dies. An additional soil that Jesus illustrates talks about the sower going out and sows the seed, and it's really, really shallow, and it springs up just for a moment, the plants, and then they die off because of the big sun and the shallowness of the soil. And then uh, another one is that the, the sower goes out and he throws the seed, and then the thorns come up and choke out the plant. And then the last soil that is mentioned in the Gospels is this parable, very popular one that people miss 
understand and try to allegorize is the, the sower goes out and sows the seed and then it reaps this harvest where there's, it multiplies and it is fruitful 30, 60 to 100 fold. And people have taken that parable and tried to equate it to mathematical equations in your proclamation of the gospel, saying that when somebody's preaching the gospel, then 75% of the people in the room aren't going to understand it, and only 25% are going to get it. And out of those 25%, they're going to reap all sorts of reward, 30, 60, and and 100 fold. Jesus wasn't intending mathematic statistical equations in that. Jesus was simply trying to clarify that when the word of God is taught, that there is a general response and different people respond in different ways. So I want to encourage you, when you're looking at these parables, parables, my encouragement is don't allegorize them. Just take them for, try to understand them contextually and understand that they don't stand alone. Anybody that teaches a parable and tries to build a whole theology off of one parable and not utilizing the rest of scripture, you should be very weary of them, leery of them, and stay away. Uh, Parables are intended to help highlight kingdom truths about Jesus and his kingdom. And the rest of Scripture will affirm and encourage, and there'll be unity in understanding these parables. Over the next several weeks, we're going to learn about some of the most important parables that I believe that are for us at North Valley. The third, third thing you need to know about parables is they have a primary purpose, according to Jesus, and that was both to conceal and to reveal. Jesus had a lot of followers. He had a lot of looky-loos, folks that were just curious. And they would create a ruckus and create confusion. And Jesus would teach parables. And I think what he was doing, the way he described them and taught them, is that he was using them in such a way that unless you really followed him closely, you would not understand everything that he was teaching. And he called for a radical commitment. So the parables you'll see, and Jesus even uh, acknowledges this in one of the Gospels, is that he, 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 it's, it's intended to conceal. It's not intended to be clear. That's why we have so much speculation, misinterpretation, because we can see like, oh, they, these are a little challenging to look at, and you have to use the rest of Scripture, and you need to really dive in. But they were also intended to reveal Jesus had a lot of followers, and, and some of them kind of consu- looked at Jesus as some kind of cosmic consultant. Others of him thought he was genuinely the, the coming Christ, the Messiah. And so Jesus did intend for to reveal quite a bit. This morning what I want to do is I want to help you understand the context of which we're going to be working with uh, in order to understand this very popular parable, perhaps that you've heard about, taking the log out of your eye. Very popular phrase. Um, You're going to learn today what that's all about. Uh, We're going to talk about big topics such as judging others and hypocrisy and all that today. Let me just paint the picture, though, just for a minute about the idea of this this story that we're going to grasp. And stories are really important, as I mentioned earlier. Jesus tells incredible story, the most masterful storyteller ever. 
Many of you guys are, have maybe been acquainted with stories in your childhood, everything from Huckleberry Finn by Mark Twain or Hamlet with Shakespeare or Moby Dick by Herman Melville, or you hear the stories and you capture the stories in, in the movies that you love. I think of movies that I grew up around, Ghostbusters, Goonies, E.T., and then all of those have a story behind them. You have Avengers, Forrest Gump, It's a Wonderful Life, Guardians of the Galaxy, Lord of the Rings, Back to the Future, Star Wars, Indiana Jones, Jaws, and another one of my personal favorites is Shawshank Redemption. They all tell major stories. What you need to know as you jump into this series that Jesus is the best storyteller in every good or great story that you've ever heard in your life, either in reading a book, watching a movie, or told by somebody, Jesus' stories are what's called the meta-narrative, the biggest story. And all good stories derive from his stories. So Jesus is going to tell a story. He's going to uh, address a crowd of individuals, some of which are, by the way, committed followers of Jesus Christ, uh, believing that Jesus truly is the Son of God. Some still have lots of questions, and then others are just the looky-loos. They're coming along, they're on for the frills and the thrills, looking at Jesus as some kind of crazy cosmic consultant, some kind of magical miracle worker, but they're following and Jesus is going to address and challenge this idea of judgment and religiosity uh, very significantly. I can remember when I first became a Christian, one of the hardest things I had to do was to go back into a deeply Christian community and try to just be me, the new me. And I was judged on, based on my previous life, unaccounted for the power of the Holy Spirit, unaccounted for the power of conversion, and people labeled me as the old Ryan. Um, the Pharisees have a challenge. They don't believe Jesus is the Messiah. In order to accept Jesus as the Messiah, they'd have to admit they were wrong. The Pharisees were very, very religious people, very, very smart people, very, very educated people. However, they missed Jesus. They spent a lot of time, listen to me, a lot of time judging others, it's examining everybody's spiritual life, trying to measure them against the law. And Jesus is going to teach us the big idea I think that we're going to gain today is that the Pharisees need less judgment and more Jesus. I think today what I'm going to challenge you to do is to place your feet into the shoes of the Pharisee that we can be very judgmental too. Let's jump into the passage. In verse 39, the gospel writer tells us that he also told them a parable. In the verse 39, Jesus starts in, you've got red letters. The red letters are very important. So is all the other rest of your scripture is very, very important. But when there are red letters, it means that Jesus is talking. Uh, so in your Bibles, if you have that, you know Jesus is talking. He told them also, he told them a parable and says, can a blind man lead a blind man? Will they not both fall into a pit? Jesus is addressing a group of individuals and he's going to be poking at the Pharisees as they're blind. They, they don't know what's going on and Jesus is going to challenge his followers, don't be like them. He continues in verse, verse 40 and says, and a disciple is not above his teacher but everyone, when he is fully trained, will be like his teacher. I can imagine in this instant right here, when Jesus is saying this, what he's doing is he's looking at his committed followers. 
the disciples that are following him, and he's in a sense saying, you've got these Pharisees over here that teach people, and the goal of a teacher is to have disciples, that is students, and if you are going to be a disciple of them, the Pharisees, then you're going to be like them. So in a sense, what Jesus is trying to make people do that are not the Pharisees, the uber-religious, self-righteous folks, he's saying, you need to pick your teacher. Are you going to let your teacher be these religious moralists, or are you going to let your teacher be Jesus? The answer is, is always Jesus. Jesus is challenging them. The best teacher is Jesus, not these Pharisees. However, if the students follow the Pharisees, they will become moralists themselves. Verse 41, Jesus is addressing now the crowd again, and he says, why do you see the speck in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? This is what's called hyperbole. It's exaggeration. Uh, technically, that word speck would, would indicate like maybe a little piece of grass that came out of a bird's nest. And those of you that have been out in the outdoors before or mowing the grass and something gets in your eye, I mean, it is irritating. However, Jesus goes a, a further crazy stretch, and I'm sure people got a laugh out of it. He says, but you do not notice the log that is in your own eye. This indicates a massive piece of lumber. If you are a construction worker, imagine filling up an eight-foot bed with wood and one of those gigantic two-by-fours stuck in somebody's eye. It just doesn't make sense. But Jesus is poking fun at, perhaps pointing at, the Pharisees. Why do you, Pharisees, see the speck a little thing in somebody else's eye, but you do not notice the log in your own eye. I'll tell you why. Because when you are hyper-judgmental, you spend all your time and energy judging other people and you don't have time to what? Judge yourself. Hypercritical people are always hypercritical and they're always really busy criticizing, labeling, condemning, uh, evaluating, judging other people. They don't have time, they're, and to do so, to accept Jesus' message would mean that they're wrong. Verse 42, he says, how can you say to your brother, brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, the speck out of your eye, when yourself you do not see the log that is in your own eye. Again, he's encouraging and challenging and exhorting. You've got to do self-inventory here. Then he goes further to say, Jesus is a very stern, very upfront teacher. He says, you hypocrite. Hypocrite, we all know what a hypocrite is, somebody who acts like one thing and does another. And in the classical Greek, the idea was a hypocrite was somebody originally that would take a mask and put it on their face and act out through the rest of the play and the drama. And Jesus is calling these folks a hypocrite. He says, first, I want you to take the log out of your own eye and then you will see clearly to take the speck that is in your brother's eye. What is he trying to create a metaphor about? He's trying to illustrate sin. And sometimes these guys have a classic history of seeing other little sins in people's lives, judging them, criticizing them, spending all their time and energy evaluating them, talking about them, gossiping about them, blasting them, arguing with them but they're not noticing the major sin in their own life. 
for a Pharisee and anybody that's been a Christian a super long time or religious, I'll say, it's harder to see the sins in your own life, but they're major sins. What is the sin of the Pharisee? It's the biggest mother sin of them all, unbelief. A failure to believe that Jesus truly is the Messiah. And we do that all the time. We fail to believe God is good enough, so we take our own way and we don't believe. Every time you sin, that means you do your way versus God's way. It's generally rooted to the mother sin of them all, unbelief. You believe, God, I got this. You don't understand. My way is better. Do you really care all that much? It's an unbelief to believe God's ways are always better than man's ways. I think that we're a lot more pharisaical um, than we'd like to admit. Anybody that's been a Christian for just a little while, you, should, you, should, you, ought, you very likely will be lumped into the Pharisee category. Um, I, I, I get there, and I hate being there. So let's talk about what it looks like to be judgmental just for a few minutes. I don't have these in your notes, but I think that there's a, five different things that we do that indicates that we're pretty judgmental people at times. Number one, I think that we often rate people based on their appearances. You can see a guy driving down the street and you see what he's dressed in and you look at him and you size him up real quick. Or you look at the car he's driving and go, huh, must be maxed out in credit card debt. I'm feeling really good about myself. My car's paid for. That guy over there is probably not. Nope, he's, he's underwater. You have no idea. Or you see a tacky car and go, golly, look at that lazy guy. He probably doesn't know how to work hard. Probably doesn't know how to like, manage a budget. Look at me. Woo! Or you see the guy on the street. Been guilty of this. He's a homeless guy. I'm not going to give him a buck. He'll go out and buy some booze. Do you know that? Or do you just think that? We judge people real fast based on their appearances. So how do you do this? You beg for help from the Holy Spirit. Lord Jesus, help me to evaluate people correctly. Help me to see people like you see people. Because I want to live like you live. Because that's where life is. I think additionally, secondly, not, in, not on the program or not on the screen, but secondly, I think we form opinions about others based on what other people say. You let other people talk about somebody and then you take their opinions and then you calculate them up in your head and go, yeah, 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 I've heard about that person, uh-huh. But you never verified if that was really true about somebody else. Then you could become hyperly judgmental. You form opinions way too fast based on what other people say. Quit hearing what people say and go ask the person what they said. Amen? But we're all guilty of this. Number three, we can assume the worst. I don't like this. I'm a grace guy. I'm somebody that'll go to the, to the nth degree to give the person the benefit of the doubt until they stab me in the back twice. Titus says, warn a divisive person once and then twice and then after that have nothing to do with them. So you do need to use judgment. But if we assume the worst out of people, 
all the time and you have no evidence, you're judgmental. If you're hyper-pessimistic or just pessimistic, you're prone to judgmentalism easily. Judging people that you don't even know their story, you don't even know their situation. You assume the worst out of people. And I know this is incredibly difficult in law enforcement. Why? Because they see the worst of people all the time. I had a police officer on our campus one, one time, and he said to me, he said, Pastor Ryan, I really appreciate you, how you interact with people. And, uh, you know, it's hard for us because we get the worst calls. We see the absolute, the ugly of the ugly of the ugly of life in our jobs. That's why we're called out. But it's good to know there's people like you that believe the best in people. And it helps us to realize we can't always assume the worst. Number four is that we label people based on what they, who they hang with. Oh, was I, was I accused all the time and judged? See, right when I became a Christian, um, I said to the uh, youth pastor at the church, I said, would you disciple me? I didn't even know what the word meant. I was just like, I heard it's popular in Christian circles, and I think it means mentor, so just disciple me. And he said, sure, I'll do that. Do you know what it means? I said, no, not really, but I'm game. <laughs> and so he discipled me for years, and one of the things he challenged me to do, he said, Ryan, you're rooted in the word. You love Jesus, and I'm holding you accountable. I want you to go back to your friends that are so far from Jesus start taking them to breakfast. And as I started doing that, other people started saying, oh, Ryan still hangs out with all his bad buddies. Yeah, but nine o'clock in the morning, not nine o'clock at night. Who you hang with? People label you really quick. In high school, we see it all the time. That kid's a thug. Why? Because he hangs by the thug. Well, he happened to eat lunch by the thug table that day. Or we're quick to make snap judgments. You make snap judgments really quick and you call it intuition. I don't think so. You're probably just judgmental. And you go, oh, I've got to, I kind of I I see it like it is real quick. No, you, you probably fall into being really judgmental too quick. My point is, guys, is that we're all guilty of this. So number one, I want to challenge you how to, live, how to live with less judgment and more Jesus. Number one, don't play God. That's not your job. Don't play God. Are you supposed to judge you know, people in some sense, yes, you are. Um, in the sense of later in, in, in the gospel of Luke, in 6, and Jesus talks about judging false prophets and teachers. And he says you can judge a tree by its fruit. So you can make judgments without being judgmental. The judgmentalness that I'm talking about here and Jesus is talking is about don't judge like the Pharisees judge. They're... They're not, they're talking about other people's little sins and they got major sins in their own life. So number one, don't play God. The apostle James said this, there's only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy, but who are you to judge your neighbor? In essence is, is you know, what I want to get at with this idea of not playing God is you don't know what's going on behind the scenes. Most of us lack divine empathy. You can't fully be omniscient. You don't know the rest of the story. So you don't play God and you don't ever try to play God. And when you try to play God, you look like a fool. And Jesus is saying, 
these Pharisees are judging like they are God. They're playing like they know they have divine insight into things and they're being hypocritical. Number two, I want to challenge you to figure out where you're going before you try to lead others to where you'd like to go. The Pharisees were doing this. They're trying to lead them on the pathway to righteousness. They're trying to lead them. Jesus is right there and he says, I am righteousness. And they don't even know where they're going. They needed to follow the Messiah. But in order to do that, what would they have to do? They'd have to acknowledge they were wrong. These are devout Jews that have not received Jesus as the Messiah. And they criticized, blasted him, later would call him a heretic. And uh, say that he is blaspheming. Figure out where you're going before you try to lead others. In Matthew's gospel, uh, Jesus says this, Let them alone, they are blind guides. And if the blind lead the blind, both will fall into a pit. That is destruction. In general, you've heard it said, right? Oh, that's like the blind leading the what? The blind. You've heard this before. It all comes from the Bible. And so Jesus is saying these Pharisees are blind. You know, I mean, I think that, you know, if you think of a, folks that are literally blind, they may be able to navigate around just a little bit. You know, you see folks that are blind, they have glasses and they have perhaps a stick or maybe they have a seeing eye dog. But just generally speaking, those aren't the guys that are going to be hired to be your airline pilot. Just saying. Um, generally, uh, they, they can guide, uh, you know, around and maybe even get out to a park. But those aren't the guides, the guys that you're going to hire to be a mountain guide in Collegiate Peaks in Colorado. Some of you are like, no, I know a blind guy that climbed a 14. Okay. But he probably doesn't have a guiding service. My point in saying this is that when we ourselves are unclear about where we're at or what God's got, who Jesus is, we don't have the authority to try to lead others. Uh, the Pharisees did not know who Jesus was. The Pharisees did not understand where true righteousness came from. It came from Jesus. And so the idea when Jesus refers back to this in the very beginning of verse 39, he says, we ask a question a rhetorical question. Can a blind man lead a blind man? And he's pointing at the Pharisees. These guys are blind. Are you following them? I'd be cautious for you. Maybe not in leading, but in following. Don't follow anybody that's blind. Not literally, but metaphorically. If they don't know Jesus, don't follow all their lifestyle. Don't let the blind lead, lead blind. You... If they're blind and they don't see who Jesus is, be very, very cautious and careful. Number three, how do you live with less judgment and more Jesus? This is exactly what Jesus was pushing out with the Pharisees. What did they need? They needed a lot less judgment and a lot more of Jesus. Number three is you just practice what you preach. It's a popular phrase used inside the church, outside the church. It doesn't really matter. But it means you just live it out. If you call yourself a Christian, act like a Christian. Where can you get the job description for a Christian? Out of the Bible. I'd encourage you though, and you, it's so you, could, you can go off into deep legalism. I want to encourage you, North Valley is a safe place. It's 
It's a church that's rooted in grace. Um, Bible says it is by grace that we're saved. It's not by our own works. It's a gift of God so that no one can boast. We ought to be some of the most humble people. We ought to be able to figure out how to identify with the people that are the down and outs and the people that are the up and the ends. That's how Jesus did it. He hung out with all sorts of folks. I want to challenge you to practice what you preach. I like to say at North Valley, oftentimes I never teach in the pulpit what I haven't first taught at the table. So in my household, I, I, try, to, I try to always just be consistent. But what I have is a, a providential uh, gift of uh, 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 accountability uh, in the form of my wife and my children. And they'll say to me sometimes, Dad, didn't you just teach on patience? And I'm like, yes, I did. Thank you very much. Dad, didn't you just teach on forgiveness? It's a gift. doesn't feel like a gift sometimes. <laughs> but we need to practice what we preach. That's not just for the preacher, me up here on the stage. It's for all of us. Because we're all preaching something. And hopefully we're preaching a lifestyle that loves Jesus and lives for Jesus. So I want to challenge you. Number four is to admit your blind spots. Please don't tell me you don't have shortcomings. We create a, a, a hyper-religious environment that doesn't really need Jesus if we act like we don't have any blind spots. The Pharisees had blind spots. Literally, Jesus said they were blind. They're really, they got some really bad blind spots. 1 John says this, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. In other words, what he's saying is Christians got blind spots. You're totally deceived if you think you don't or you're not a Christian, one of the two. So we've got to admit that, our, that we have blind spots. I, I read recently, uh, years ago, the medical world laughed at a gentleman who brought up this idea of what was called the germ theory. For years and years, this guy was addressing the medical community and saying that there's infections and diseases and there in organisms that you can't even see. And the medical community laughed. <laughs> Whatever, you're crazy. And he's like, no, 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 no. These are, these are like germs. And, and, and he got just bashed by the medical community. And finally, later, it was hard to admit, but the medical community realized this and they had to admit they were wrong and then that guy was right. I think a lot of times it becomes really difficult for us to admit that when we're wrong. If you got kids, maybe you need to admit to one of your children and say something like this, hey, you were right and I was wrong. Not too long ago, we're driving around trying to drop off my kid at school. And my son's like, Dad, you should have turned like two blocks ago. And I'm like, no, no, this is a better way. He's like, okay, I'll be late. Finally, I'm like, you're right, I'm wrong. You know, listen, it feels good to say that sometimes. I like saying things like this. You're right, I'm wrong. On a good day, on a bad day, I don't, it's like, you're right, I'm wrong. <laughs> but on a good day, I feel good to say that. You're right, I'm wrong. I like saying this, 
my mistake, if it's an honest mistake. Here's what's always hard for me to say. I'm sorry. I sinned against you. Please forgive me. That is so vulnerable. That is so challenging to say, even when you got the best of nice Christian people you're working with. That's difficult to say, but it's good and it's godly. I want to encourage you to admit your blind spots. No matter what you've done, no matter who you've wronged, make it right. Admit your blind spots. Don't be like the Pharisees. All of us need less judgment and more Jesus. See, if we admit our blind spots, aha, then we won't be so preoccupied seeing everybody else's issues. That's the problem. If you truly acknowledge on a daily basis your mistakes, where you go wrong, you're spending cognitive time, wheels are spinning, where you're thinking about, what did I do wrong? Oh, man, I I did that wrong. Rather than, oh, he did that wrong. Mm. She did that. Mm. Uh Uh-huh, her, she did that. And that's like A, B, C. That's a violation of all sorts of wrongs and sins and implications. It's just not healthy. Number five, I want to challenge you to meet people right where they're at and love them like Jesus. I told you earlier that what's radical about Jesus and what's true for this church is we want to reach all kinds of people, the down and outs, the up and ends. The folks that are going through the roughest patch of time, just a couple uh, days ago, one of our um, uh, volunteers came in and we have this bell in our office and we were like ringing the bell and I said, what is it, what is it? And he goes, four years of sobriety today. We all just erupted, yeah! In a highly religious culture, whoa, whoa, whoa. Oh, I didn't, you have that problem? Wow. I'm just telling you, guys, all of us are, are, fall short of the glory of God. We need to be a culture that celebrates meeting people right where they're at. 1 Corinthians 13, 7 says this, Love bears up under anything and everything that comes, is ever ready to believe the best of every person. It hopes, its hopes are fadeless and under all circumstances, and it endures everything without weakening. What we need is we need uh, less judgment and more Jesus. Check out this story. You know, I was selfish and self-centered to the core. That's how I lived most of my life. When I was 17, I I followed some girls to church and uh, I was baptized. And uh, I thought, I didn't quite understand the whole God thing, but I, I hoped that when I was baptized that it would make me better. Um, it would fix me. Uh, that, that wasn't the case. Uh, I, it didn't fix me, and, and uh, I continued to basically lie, cheat, and steal um, for, for a long time. It, uh, my whole life I had been trying to fill this hole with women. And I I was asking these women in my life to give me something I couldn't even give myself. And that God had everything that I was asking for and that I just needed to surrender to God and trust that God would take care of me. And and, uh, in that day, there was a surrender. 
I just started to put one foot in front of the other. And, and somehow along the way, this um, amazing woman in my life uh, for when I was a kid, uh, I'd met when I, you know, going into my sophomore year and, and she was going into her freshman year in, in high school. And uh, we became best friends then and we ran into each other a bunch of times over the years. We just ended up being best friends and, and um, I called LaDonna and I said, I have some things I have to take care of in my life, uh, but when I'm done, I, I'm coming to get you if you're available. And uh, <laughs> and I I caught her a little off guard, uh, but she, she didn't wait long to call me back. And she was beautiful, and it was an amazing wedding. And and uh, and so we've been married for a while, and uh, and uh, we had five-year wedding anniversary this year. I decided, you know, I was up at the coffee shop again, and I decided that I was going to pick the church, you know. Decided I'm the spiritual leader in the house, so I'm going to pick the church. So I, I went home, and I said, so we're going to go to, we're going to, go to North Valley Church. That's going to be our church. And she said, you know, I'm glad you said that, because I decided this morning I was going to let you pick. And so we've been at North Valley ever since, and, uh, and we love our church, and you know, we ended up in a neighborhood group and, and their family and we ended, you know, ended up being neighborhood group leaders eventually and uh, we love our church. I left the house one night and my wife called me shortly after that and, and she was frantic and I thought maybe something happened to one of our dogs and, and uh, so I hurried back to the house and when I came in she, she had me come upstairs and she was pretty frantic and, and uh, uh, the other kids were in the rooms, and, and we went upstairs, and she said, um, I got a call from the coroner's office, and uh, my first thought was my son James that was struggling really bad, that, um, that something had happened to him, and then she said, this San Diego coroner's office, and, um, and I immediately knew that that was my son Seth, and... Um, and she, she told me that Seth had, had overdosed. And, um, and I just remember screaming at the top of my lungs and um, being on the floor and yelling and her trying to comfort me and crying. And, and, and it, I don't know how far into that I was, but somewhere right in the middle of that, I realized that there was going to be a bunch of people hurting. they were going to need me and and there was one in that house including my wife but um, his little brother that that idolized him um, was going to be hurting and, and he was going to need me and I was going to have to talk to him so I immediately uh, realized that God was going to need me for other things and and I sucked it up and, and not into a stuffing way but in a, a way that I, I felt like God would God would get me through it. You know, that was the most painful thing in my life, and I've had a lot of painful things in my life, but that was the most painful thing I've ever gone through. And, um, but I never, in, a, in any of that, did I feel like God had done me wrong. North Valley surrounded us, uh, surrounded my family. Pastor Ryan came to the house. Uh, he prayed with us. Our neighborhood group 
prayed with us. Uh, they fed us. They, I mean, it, you know, we got closer to God through the whole process. And I'm blessed to have North Valley as my church. I'm blessed to have uh, Christ in the center of my home. And I'm blessed to have all the friends we have today that, that are good Christian friends and, and to be willing to reach out to those around us and bring them, bring them along. We celebrate what God's doing in the lives of people. Yeah. Hey, uh, I want to encourage you. Listen, you never know what people are going through. And, uh, you know, that time in Justin's life, it was, uh, like he said, the most painful thing in his life. And, you know, what, what Jesus wants more than anything is for a church that reaches out to share and show the love of Christ to people all around us, no matter where they're at. Thank you for listening. To become a supporter of North Valley Community Church, give online today at northvalleychurch.org.